Uh, while the handouts are being passed out, uh, you can just uh, open up in a word of prayer, ask for the Lord's blessing on this time. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you uh, for this day of worship that we've had thus far. We thank you, Father, that uh, you are gracious and merciful to us, and we thank you that you left us uh, not without a witness, but that you have made yourself known to us, and that uh, we are known by you, and that we are loved by you, and that we are saved uh, by you through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, bless this time as we look now to um, who we worship in, in our worship of, of you, Father. We ask, this, uh, ask your blessing on this time. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so, this is part two in our uh, series on worship, and um, I was about to take a cue from Randy last week when, you know, asked the question, who we worship, and he, the answer seemed kind of obvious. We worship God, mic drop, hop on my horse, and ride off into the sunset. But um, I figured I had to be a little more thorough than that, given the amount of time we have here. So, um, what you have before you is a handout, and... On that handout, um, I took a section of the Confession of Faith, Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 21, Section 2, uh, which states, Religious worship is to be given to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and to Him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creature, and since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other but of Christ alone. So as you look at your handout and the four points, I just took what was in that section of the confession and just built it into four points that we'll be kind of expanding on throughout our time here. So the, the four points being worship is to be given to God and God alone. Worship is Trinitarian. Worship is not to be given to any other created being or object. And worship to God is mediated by Christ and none other. So taking all that and kind of combining it into a theme statement, we are to worship the Trinitarian God of Scripture and Him alone through the mediation of Jesus Christ. Now, to begin with, I'm kind of new to Presbyterianism, so I, I come from a Baptist background, so I'm kind of reading through the confessions and the, and the catechisms. So I'm going to open up a question here. Who can recite, Not church officers not included, who can recite Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism, Q&A 1. Okay, go for it. There you go. Chief end of man is to enjoy God and to worship, glorify God and enjoy him forever. So Randy took that last week and noted that we, you know, as to why we worship is we were, we, we were created to worship. That is our chief end. But also in that question and answer is who we worship. We worship God, and we're to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Now, if you were to go up to somebody on the street and ask this kind of awkward question, it's like, well, who do you worship? And they said, God. What could you take from that? Can you take that they worship the God of Scripture? Could you, what would you take from that? Right. So saying that you worship God is not enough. What God do you worship? And we need to know, one of the things we have to know, I mean, we are creatures who, who will worship. We will worship anything. If not God, as we heard in the sermon today, if we're, fallen people do not worship God, but they will worship something. 
We're, we're built to worship, and if we're not worshiping the triune God of nature, of, of Scripture, we're going to be worshiping something else. We will create gods. We will, we will put something in the place of God. For example, let's say, who, who are American football fans here? Okay. Now, wow, really, that, that few? <laughs> I, I, I say four hands, like, really? Okay. That's because you're all here worshiping on Sunday, not watching football, right? Okay. But, okay. but if you're a football fan or a fan of anything, um, you're going you're gonna to know the sport. You're going to know about your favorite team. You're going to know who the record holders are. I mean, I've got a friend of mine who could spout off record holders for you know, every conceivable football category under the sun. He's a football fan. I mean, and the word fan comes from fanatic. So, you know, in a way, you could say maybe he worships football, okay? If you're a fan of something, you're going to worship it. And if you, if you worship something, you're going to know something about it. So we need to know about this God that we worship. So worship is to be given to God and God alone. So who, or as the catechism also says, what is God? Now, we know from Scripture that God is incomprehensible, that being the infinite being that he is, he cannot be completely or fully known. But we also do know that he condescends to reveal himself to us so that we can know something about him. And what we do know from him as he has revealed himself to us, we can know truly, we can know that it is fact, that it is right, and that it's correct. So even though he is an infinite being and cannot be fully known, he does reveal himself to us and we can know him truly. And he is set to, he has revealed himself in two primary ways. We have natural revelation and special revelation. So natural revelation or general revelation is the revelation that we have through nature. So if someone has a Bible, if they can open up to uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. And then whoever gets there can just read it. Sword drills. Got it? Please read it. Correct. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Thank you. <clears throat> so, you know, among, in that passage, one of the things we do realize is that God is evident in nature, that he has revealed himself in such a way through the creation that we can clearly perceive him and that we have no excuse to, to not know that there is a God. And, but with this, this knowledge that he gives us, this knowledge that we have through nature, is incomplete. 
one of the things, you know, among the things that we know about God through nature is his power, his immense power, the power to create all things that we see. We also know that, um, that he is, um, what are some of the other, what are some of the other adjectives in there that they use? His divine nature. So he's clearly seen. I should have opened there myself. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly perceived. So we have that, that knowledge of him through nature. And because of that, we are without excuse. But we don't know God in a saving way. We don't know, we, nature does not reveal to us his love, his grace, his mercy that he has for us as fallen sinners. For that, we need special revelation. And without God condescending to reveal himself to us in that special way, we are left to concoct our own ideas about God, which is what the passage does say we do in our fallen nature without that special revelation by denying and rejecting that, suppressing that truth, we concoct our own gods in, you know, in very many ways. What are, some, what are some false conceptions of God that we see in our culture today? That's, that's, yep, that's, that's one. Any others? The, the what machine god? Oh, the vending machine god. Okay. Okay. Any others? The man upstairs. Yeah. Any others? Yeah. Yeah, there's just a divine father, just you know, but only the good stuff, right? Not 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 the discipline, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean I came up with a few. Uh who are Star Wars fans here? Anybody? Okay. All right. The force, right? You know, Obi Wan, you know, Luke, you know, the force is with you. So I mean that's that God is an impersonal thing that binds the universe together and that you can kind of draw strength from and do miraculous things. Uh, so that's one false conception of God that I came up with. Another one is that he's, uh, God is identified with all things, or a pantheistic uh, kind of worldview where God is nature and nature is God. Um, or the, the, the watchmaker, you know, that he's detached from creation. He creates, sets it in motion, then goes off to, you know, Pluto and sets his feet up for the, you know, for the rest of eternity, watching everything go on. That's a, that's a form of deism. Um, I also came up with the, the dualistic version of God, if you will, the God of the Old Testament or the God of the New Testament, or um, maybe in a not-so-biblical form, just a Manichaeanism kind of thing, where you've got, you know, you've got the God of the good God and the evil God, or the force of good and the force of evil, and they combat and, and fight each other. These are just many of the examples that you can come up with if you do not have a right knowledge of God. You just start concocting these things. But intelligent design, design. yeah. I mean, and that's even supposedly used to support, you know, Christian worldview. But now it's become its own thing, because unbelievers obviously, you know, will believe in an intelligent design as well. 
But through special revelation, God has made himself known to us. So someone different can open up to Hebrews 1 and read the first two verses. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also he created the world. Thank you. So in those two verses, what we have is, this is one of the classic passages that talks about the progressive nature of Revelation, how long ago in the Old Testament, God spoke to the prophets, through signs, through visions, through dreams, and then eventually fully revealed in his son. So God's revelation of himself to us has been ongoing from the, from the first point on in chunks, in, in spurts, and then finally fully revealed in his son. And one of the things that you see in, as he reveals himself to us are, is his character and his attributes. And... Um, One of the things I found was very interesting is if you go through the Old Testament, God refers himself or he is referred to by several names. So it's the, you know, if you if you've studied theology, you know, you get the, you know, the attributes of God and you get the whole laundry list. He's immutable. He's in, you know, he's eternal, da, 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 which is very philosophical, very precise. But in the Old Testament, as as this has been revealed, you see, you see this revelation through his names. And particularly, like as Brother Denange showed us in the Psalms, the Psalms also reveal God's character to us in many ways. One, uh, who knows some of the, besides Yahweh, which is an, an, an obvious one, what are some of the names that God has referred to in the Old Testament? Elohim. Adonai. El Shaddai. You can give us the English. The rock. The rock. He is the rock. What's that? The Lord. The Lord, yes. Hmm? Abba Father. That's more of a New Testament one, but yeah. Yeah, yeah so El Shaddai is, is translated God Almighty, which shows his omnipotence, his strength. Um, El Elyon, or you know, God Most High. He is, that's, that's how uh, Abraham referred to him and how uh, Melchizedek referred to him. I am a priest of the God Most High. Um, I'm going to use the, the Baptist pronunciation, Jehovah Jireh, or <laughs> Yahweh Yirah. God will provide. He provides for his people. Um, El, uh, I'm going to butcher this one, Sabaoth, Sabaoth. Uh, the, uh, the Lord of hosts, or God of hosts. He commands a great army of angels. And then, of course, Yahweh, the covenant name that, it, that he reveals to us in, in the burning bush. So in Exodus 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, we see the name there. So in Exodus 3, um, 
starting in verse 13, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So there he gives you the covenant name. This is the name that he gives as he's giving the covenant. As he comes to to Moses in the wilderness, he reveals his personal name, which, you know, know, in the text says, I am who I am, which speaks to his eternal existence, his self-sufficiency, his grandeur. I mean, it's, it's just... It's just an amazing name, the way he reveals it to them. And and, and when he covenants with them at at Sinai, you know, it's, you know, I am Yahweh. I'm the one who led you out of Egypt. I'm the one who saved you. I rescued you from from Egypt. So, you know, you get this covenant name of God, which is his special personal name, in a sense. And then in the New Testament, as Christ comes, he reveals God as Father. In fact, when... We say the Lord's Prayer each Sunday. You know, the, the, the preface is, when you pray, say, Our Father. So God is revealed to us in the New Testament as our Father. All of, these, all of these names, all of these names that he goes by, point to the fact that God is personal, that he, he communicates to us, he interacts with us, he guides and directs us, he judges us, he saves us. Again, going back to Exodus 20, verse 2, when he you know, he's about to give the covenant. He's about to give the law. He says, I am the God who, who brought you out of Egypt. So it's preface. Before he even gives the stipulations of the covenant, he tells you why you should follow me, because I am the one who saved you. I am the one who rescued you out of bondage. See, so he saves us, and he covenants with us, which is just a glorious picture of how God condescends to make an, to make an agreement with his people through, through mediation, of course, but he, he reaches down and says, I will do this for you, and I will covenant with you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. But God is personal. He's not the force. He's not something you think about and then you start moving objects with. He's not a God who's removed from us. He's not a God who is in everything. He is, he is a personal God that is both separate from creation, but interacts and works in his creation as he sees fit to accomplish his holy will. But in the fullness of time, as we learned last week, in the fullness of time, God came and took on human flesh. So this God who is both imminent, or both, you know, he's both beyond us, but also imminent with us, he comes down and condescends to take on a human form and interact with us. So he's God with us. And in Christ... You know, we see that, that God is, you know, at least with the beginning of Christ, we see that God is Trinitarian. We start to see the Trinity come out more in more depth and more fullness in the New Testament, which leads us to the second point, worship is Trinitarian. So the Trinity, as, as with everything that, you know, is, you know, in Hebrews we talked about, you know, uh, Revelation is progressive. The Trinity has also been sort of, implied or hinted at in the Old Testament. We see it in seed form, if you will, in Genesis 1-2 when, you know, when God is talking about how he created all things and you see the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. 
Uh, we see maybe a hint of it, if you will, in Genesis 1.27, when he talks about making man in our image, in our likeness. Now, you know, some take that, oh, that's, that's, you know, the us, that's the Trinity. It's like, well, maybe, maybe not. It could be. The point is, is that you start to see these hints in the Old Testament, and you don't want to necessarily use these as full-blown proof text for the Trinity. But then again, you get, you get this, another, um, if you will, seed form of the Trinity is this figure called the angel of the Lord that you see in various uh, points throughout the Old Testament, particularly in that burning bush passage that we read earlier. In the earlier verses, in 1 through 6, the angel of the Lord is in the bush and appears to Moses. And this, this figure, the angel of the Lord, is depicted as a messenger from God who is distinct from God, but then in very many of these same passages, that angel of the Lord then is identified with God. So it's almost as if, you know, it's, I'm the angel of the Lord, but then, you know, I'm not just speaking for God, but I'm, I'm speaking as God. But we also see uh, in the New Testament that the Trinity is much more explicitly stated uh, in the incarnation of Christ, in uh, John's prologue of, of his gospel, particularly verses 1 and 2, or ver- in verse 14 and 18, where the Word was with God and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. And then in verse 14, where it talks about how the word came down and took on flesh and dwelt among us. Um, At the baptism of Jesus Christ, you have all three persons of the Trinity present. You have the voice of the Father speaking. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. I am well pleased with him. You have the Spirit in the form of a dove descending upon Christ. And, of course, you have Christ himself in the river Jordan being baptized. Um, In the formula of the Great Commission... Uh, that the, the baptismal formula where uh, as Jesus is sending out his disciples into the world, he says, baptize them in the name, singular name, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, not the names. And then we have uh, Paul's Trinitarian benediction in 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen, which is, we hear that every Sunday, every Sunday, every Lord's Day, we hear uh, that one. <laughs> I don't know it by heart. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so here, you know, you see these statements that, that just show the Trinitarian nature of the God whom we worship. And now in the Gospels, we clearly see that Christ is human. I mean, we clearly see his humanity in the Gospels. He weeps. He's tired. He's hungry. He eats. Um, he gets angry. He, he, he's joyful. But in some, you know, we also see the deity of Christ in, the, in some of the great Christological passages of the, of the New Testament. Again, John 1, verses 1 through 18, Philippians 2, 5 through 7, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and again in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. All of these just speak about the, the, the preeminence of Christ, how he's before all things, how all things were created by him and through him, um, how he... In Philippians, how he uh, consi- considered being equal with God not as, something, uh, as a thing not to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant. Um, in Hebrews, he was, he's the, 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 the radiance and the, the exact image of God, the Father. So we see the Trinity, you know, it's focused, the New Testament's focused on Christ, but we see, you know, that he's um, deity as well, that he is God, the God the Son. 
And then, of course, we have the Holy Spirit, um, you know, the, uh, the personality and deity of the Holy Spirit. He is referred to by Jesus in the upper room discourse as the helper or the paraclete or the, the um, I forget some of the other, counselor. counselor. Yeah, that's some of the other ones. You know, if someone could read um, John 14, verses 16 through 17, and then in that same chapter, uh, 25 through 26. Okay. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. And the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then 20. 25 and 26. Yep. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, and the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Okay, thank you. So here you see the, the personality and also the deity of the Holy Spirit. He, he's not, uh, you know, he's, he himself is not a force. He is a person sent by God, sent by the Son to help us, to lead us to all truth, to, um, to bring to remembrance what he has told us. Um, he, is, he is, I mean, if you, I've heard the book of Acts re- described as the gospel according to the Holy Spirit. Because in that, in that book, the Holy Spirit is very active. And you see that the Spirit very active in the book of Acts. And speaking of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 5, verses uh, 3 and 4, we see the Holy Spirit identified with God. Acts 5, 3, and 4, this is the, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Um, and in verse 3, it says, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in, in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So there you have the lie to the Holy Spirit is a lie to God. The Holy Spirit is God. So he's both personal and also deity. So the bottom line of all this is, though our worship is Trinitarian in nature, we're not worshiping three gods. We're worshiping one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Nor are we just worshiping any one person of the Trinity any given Sunday. It's not like this is the Sunday we worship the Holy Spirit, come back next week and we'll worship God the Son. No, no, no. We worship God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, and him alone. Which brings us to point three. Worship is not to be given to any other created being or object. So before I really get into this, I want to do a brief um, discussion on the nature of polytheism versus henotheism versus monotheism. So polytheism, poly, many, theism, God. So it's basically the word that means worship of many gods. Henotheism is worship of one God out of many. So there are many gods to choose from. You pick one. This is our tribal god. This is our nation, national god, what have you. And, of course, monotheism is there's only one god. Okay. Now, some say that you know, in, in the evolution of religion, we came from polytheists to henotheists to monotheists. 
And I would argue, though, we were all originally monotheists and then degressed into polytheism, maybe henotheism, etc. But Abraham, when he was called by God, was more than likely polytheistic. He came out of a polytheistic culture in, in the ancient Chaldean uh, culture. They worshipped many gods. He was probably a polytheist. We don't know that for a fact, but just the fact that he came from, from there probably suggested that at least his family was polytheistic. Um, some modern scholars believe that early Jewish culture was actually henotheistic as opposed to monotheistic, that Yahweh was just one god among many that they believed, but they decided to worship Yahweh. But I think the Bible makes pretty clear that monotheism is really the only view. First verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's God. It's, and he's coming out, he's saying, I'm here, I'm the only one that's here, I'm the one who made all of this, everything else is false. So all the other gods, if you will, small g gods, are the creations of men due to our sin, our sin nature, and our natural desire to flee from God and to worship something else. As we said earlier, if you're not worshiping God, you're going to be worshiping something else, and you're going to fill that, that vacuum with something. You have to. That's just the way we were created. And as we read in, in, in Romans again, you know, we will fill that with created things, birds, trees, whatever. I mean, think about the modern environmentalist movement. I mean, you could say they worship the earth. They, they revere it so much that we have to protect the earth. We have to save the earth. It's, it's almost a religion to them in a way. So no other creature or created thing is even worthy of our worship. If you think about this, if God created all things, how can anything he made by his hand, which is everything, be worthy of worship? I mean, just by definition, anything created by God is going to be of a lesser glory, a lesser worth than God himself. And then, by, not, by definition, nothing created can even surpass his glory and majesty. Uh, if someone would, please, uh, Isaiah 44, verses 12 through 17. Anybody who has it can. Yep, go ahead. The iron still takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with a strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water in his faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars where he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it in an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes it to a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. 
So, I mean, just think how the, the, the humor in that, in that passage. So here's a guy, he's toiling, he's making things, and then he takes this wood and he cuts it up and uses it to warm himself and to cook his meal. And he's got a little bit of wood left over. So what am I going to do? I'm going to make a god. He makes a god and bows down to it. The same wood, same tree, cooks a food, cooks his meal, warms himself by the fire, worships it. You know, it's, just, it's folly. But here you have something that's created, something that God made, yet, and he uses it for very mundane things, and with the leftover parts, he makes a God that he worships. That, that's that's the, the depth of our sin. That's the depth of our depravity to the point where we will not worship the God that is revealed to us. We will turn away and worship something else. But, you know, as I said, though, but nothing can surpass the, 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 the majesty and glory of the creator who created all things. Um... So God commands us to worship him and worship him only. Again, going back to Exodus 22, 20, verse 2, not 22. Got to make sure I say that correctly. Uh, in that verse, God says, I am the Lord your God, or Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. So he commands us to worship him. He commands us to worship him based on the fact that he is the one who delivered them from slavery. And by uh, extension, as you know, we are delivered out of the slavery of sin, we are commanded to worship God as well. He commands us not because other gods exist, but because it is right and true. We are created to worship, as we learned in Westminster Shorter Catechism, question, one and, uh, question and answer one. God is actually jealous for our worship, as you will see in verse 4 of, of uh, Exodus 20. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any other likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to, to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. He's a jealous God but not jealous in the way that we think of jealousy. Not like a, a sinful jealousy that's like, I want, you know, who, that wants what it wants for its own sake. But he's, he's got a jealous zeal for the well-being of his people, and he knows that worship of other things will not bring the lasting peace or the lasting contentment that, is, that he designed us for. But it's only through worship of him he knows that is because he is the only thing, that God is the only thing that is worthy of our worship, he's jealous for us that we want that. So that, that, that's why he is jealous for us. He wants what's best for his people and knows that that comes only from worshiping and enjoying God forever. So even though we are called to worship the Trinitarian God as revealed in Scripture, we must not do so, though, without a mediator, which leads to our fourth and final point. Worship to God is mediated by Christ and none other. So I have a couple other verses here. Um, John fourteen six. No one can come to me except through me. No one can come to the Father except through me. Um, someone, three different people. Ephesians two eighteen. Someone else can take Colossians three seventeen, and then finally First Timothy two five.
Uh, Ephesians 2.18, Colossians 3.17, and 1 Timothy 2.5. All right, who's got what? All right, who, who has Ephesians 2.18? Nobody. <laughs> that's the one. That's the one. Okay. All right, thank you. <laughs> so through him, that's Christ, we have access in one spirit to the Father. Who has the Colossians 3.17? Okay, please. So, again, through him. And who's got the First Timothy 2.5? Paul? For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And there you go. I mean, that couldn't be stated any more explicitly than that. There's only one man, the man Christ Jesus, who is the mediator between God and man. So why is worship to be mediated? Why, why do we have to worship God through a mediator? It wasn't necessarily the case before the fall. Before the fall, Adam and Eve had direct access to God. They walked together in the garden in the cool of the day. But since the fall, man was cast out of the garden. He was cast out of God's presence and sent out into the world. And ever since that point in time, man cannot come to God unless he comes through means or through a mediation and through a mediator. So since Adam failed as our covenant head, it pleased God to make a new covenant, a covenant of grace with Jesus Christ as the mediator. As it says in uh, the Confession of Faith, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, section 3, man by his fall, having made himself unacceptable of life by that covenant, the covenant of works, the Lord was pleased to make a second commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers to sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him, that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those who are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So since, again, since the fall, since Adam fell, and since he failed as our covenant head, it pleased God to make a new covenant with Christ as the second head, or the second Adam, or the last Adam. He is the head of the covenant of grace. So, since the fall into sin, access to God must be through means of a, of a mediator, and it must be Christ or none other. Again, in uh, Confession of Faith, chap- chapter 7, section 5, this covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation and is called the Old Testament. So this mediation through Christ, even in Old Testament times, was prefigured through the entire Jewish sacrificial system. The temple, the sacrifices, all of this stuff pointed forward to Christ. But now in the fullness of time, Christ has come, and now we know that through his perfect righteousness imputed to us through faith, we are made righteous in God's eyes. Through his death on the cross, our sin debt has been completely paid in full, and we are no longer guilty. And through his spirit living in us, 
We are adopted into God's family and co-heirs with Christ. All of this, of course, we heard last Sunday. (laughs) But all of this is possible only through the mediation of Jesus Christ and him alone. It is through through him alone that we can come into God and enjoy all the benefits and, and, and blessings that we have that he has that he wants to give to us. He can give to us only through Christ. So wrapping this all up, it is not enough to simply say, I worship God, unless you know the God whom you worship. You can't rightly worship what you don't rightly know. And God has condescended to reveal himself to us so that we could know him rightly and give him the worship that is rightly his. Uh, We must acknowledge the Trinitarian nature of God in our worship of him. All three persons, equal in power and glory, are worthy of our worship and praise. But our worship must also be distinctly Christian in that Christ, as our mediator, is the one that restores our relationship with the Father and grants us access to God. He is our prophet, priest, and king. Any questions? The floor is open. (laughs) If not, uh, we'll... I'm done. <laughs> Next week we have um, let's see. So what? You know why? Who? How?